what, what now? What are our next steps? How are we supposed to now live? What are we supposed to do now? Do you guys remember maps? Not Google Maps, not MapQuest, but maps, like glove box maps. You remember those? How many of you still use maps? <laughs> not one person. Great. That's okay. Yeah. Maps are great because they tell you what street to turn on. But they don't, they don't get bogged down with minute details that don't matter. They give you the overview, the big picture. I don't know, uh, when I was growing up, we, you know, MapQuest was, was starting to become a thing, but not really until middle school. And so I remember in like third, fourth, fifth grade, having to call my friend's landline to get directions to his house. <laughs> and depending on your friend and how, you know, their personality or whatever, uh, whether or not they'd give you the directions themselves or hand you to their mom to give you directions. This is like, this feels super old school, but I'm, I'm not that old. You guys remember? And they would give me directions to their house. And sometimes, you know, I was someone, I just wanted the streets, right? Turn on 198th, turn on 20th Avenue, turn right on 196th, I'm this address. That's what I wanted. Four steps, all the numbers. But I had some friends that would give me landmarks. And that drive me nuts. Okay, so there's this red mailbox. No, no, it's like deep red, not the maroon-ish one. It's the red one. Turn left there, and then there's a huge tree. That's our house. That would just drive me nuts. But that's how some people gave out directions. And why am I telling you this? Because Paul today is giving us a roadmap. He's giving us a roadmap of gospel effort, which is basically how do we walk now in faithfulness to Jesus in light of Easter Sunday? And he starts out with this 30,000-foot view. He zooms out to the big picture, the forest view, not the trees. In the first couple of verses, he gives us a broad picture of why we're even here. Why we're sitting in these pews right now. But not just why we're here, who we are. And what general direction do we need to go as followers of Jesus? And then in the next few verses, he zooms in. He, he does the landmark thing. He zooms into the trees in order to give us the specific turns we need to take, the pitfalls we need to avoid on this journey that we are on together in following Jesus as a church. And finally, in the last couple of verses, he wraps up with his heart, his personal heart for this church in his tone and his his care for them. And so, we'll start out with a zoomed out view of gospel effort. And then we'll zoom into the trees, the, the specifics. And then we'll conclude with the heart of gospel effort. So we'll be in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. So starting in verse 12. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for another day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for one another. Lord, we pray that you would open up our ears, open up our eyes, that we might hear and see reality, that we might hear your words and that they might change us, that they might help us to realign ourselves with the creator and author of the universe. Lord, we want to sit under your teaching this morning. We want to sit under your word. I pray that it would be your word that goes forth right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so by way of review, Paul, in these verses, he is finishing off something that he started already. And back in chapter 1, verse 27, he has started to give them their marching orders. As followers of Jesus in Philippi, a Roman colony, he started writing that they are to remember that they are citizens of a new kingdom ruled by Christ, and as such, they should be unified. They should be unified in mind, unified in love, and unified in focus. But there's some conflict between some of the people in this church. And perhaps even between some of the leaders of this church. And Paul wants to nip it in the bud. Why? So that they can move as one. So that they can move as one for the sake of embodying and proclaiming the gospel in their city so that they can make a difference for the kingdom of God in their city. They have a job to do, and they only have a limited time in which to do it. And then to illustrate his point, he goes straight to the heart. He goes straight to the cosmic life story of Jesus Christ. And this is what we looked at last week. That Jesus Christ's character was such that even though he was entirely God, he took the opportunity to empty himself of his divine privileges in order to become a man. And further, he took on the suffering of men in order to die on their behalf. He came all the way down, and then God raised him all the way up up because of it 
to be the Lord of all creation, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, that all things would be renewed through Him, that no one could come to the Father but through Him. And all people are now invited into that reality, into that new life. So that's where Paul has been camping for the last few weeks. And now he's getting into the what next, the what now, the culmination of this encouragement. And this starts in verses 12 and 13. Let's look at those again. He says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So here in these verses, we see the forest. This is the 30,000 foot view of discipleship. What are the next steps for them? He kicks off this now what with this word therefore. Now, if, you've, if many, any of you have grown up in middle school church, you know, the, the preacher says, all right, therefore, and then he, he goes, and then the junior high kids are supposed to say, what is it there for? And then he goes, well, it's there because, you know, therefore, connecting to what was just said, now I'm going to give you what to do now. And we cannot ignore this. We cannot ignore the therefore because that is the why. Why should we joyfully press on in the gospel? Why? Because of Christ. Because of who he is. Because of what he's like, what he did, and where he sits at this very moment. None of us would be here today if it weren't for what Jesus did. Therefore, because of him. And then Paul moves on and says, Therefore, my beloved, my beloved. Not many of us use that word these days. My beloved. Every next step that we take is rooted in these two things. We cannot brush past these. These two things. Who Jesus is and who we are. Jesus is the self-sacrificing Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us. Who are we? We are dearly loved. We are the beloved of God. Dearly loved children. We'll get to the fact that we are children of God in a minute. We cannot rush past these two things. These two things are what every next step that you take are rooted in. Who Jesus is and who you are in God's eyes. And notice that Paul says, my beloved. You know, this is, these are Paul's words. You, Philippian church, you are my beloved. This is Paul's heart for his friends. And in chapter 1, he says that he yearns for them with the affection of Christ Jesus himself. Isn't it beautiful that God can give us his very heart for one another? In and of ourselves, we do not have enough love to go around. We do not have the love it takes to love one another well. 
And so Paul illustrates this for us in saying, I yearn for you with the affection of Christ. He has given me this affection for you. And we need the same thing if we are to love one another well. God can gift us his love in order that we might share it with one another. And the crazy thing is, not just with those we think are are cool, we can do that with our enemies. That's the difference that Christ makes. He says, love one another, yes, but he also says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who mistreat you, he says. Paul doesn't know if he'll be around much longer or when he'll be able to see his friends again. And so he communicates him like it could be the last time. He says, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. You know, he doesn't know when he'll be able to be with them again. And if you have kids or you've been around uh, junior hires, you know that people obey when their boss is around, and not so much when they turn the corner out of the room. And even coworkers, I'm sure you've experienced this. Paul's saying, I'm not your boss. I'm not your boss. You have someone to obey who's always with you. And he wants them to press on even if he is absent. So he gives them a sober instruction. And this is it. From a 30,000 foot view, this is their next step. It says, what is it? Obey. Obey. If Jesus is Lord, y'all need to obey him. Pretty simple. And for us, this is the instruction we should take away. Obey Jesus. If he's Lord. If you've entrusted your life to him. If we are a community of Christians, which just means little Christs, what's our job? Obey Jesus. And it makes sense if he is indeed the king of this newly inaugurated kingdom. But the other reason it makes sense is just a few verses earlier. In verse 8, we see that Jesus himself became obedient. It says, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As Jesus' disciples, those who have chosen to follow him, we are to be like him. If he obeyed, then we walk in his ways and we also obey. As Jesus as, as he did, we obey because he obeyed first. But take a look at the big picture of what this obedience looks like. There in verse 12, it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is, this is one of the most beautiful realities in all of Christianity. We are invited into the most challenging, the most meaningful, the most character-building, the most world-affecting vocation we can ever imagine. 
And we should take it seriously because God is God and sin is sin and people need Jesus and we need Jesus. And yet we need not be crushed by this vocation. We need not be crushed by this instruction. Why? Because this is an invitation to a work that God himself is already doing. When God invites us to work hard, it's because he's working even harder. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we would be mistaken to read that sentence as a contradiction to Paul's theology of being saved by grace and grace alone. For Paul and the other writers of the New Testament, salvation does not end at conversion. God saves us by His grace, and then He invites us along with Him to work our tails off. But that's good. Who of you wants to sit on your bottom all day and do nothing with your life? Do you really want that? No. You want to work. You want to, do, you want to make your life meaningful. You want meaningful purpose in life. God invites you to that. He says, work out this salvation. Join me in the hard work that I am doing. We are invited to participate. Now this is one of the best facets of the gospel that I have ever encountered. The Christian life is not boring. Praise God. He does not call us to a boring life. He calls us to an exciting life. A life lived in faith and work. But it's not work to earn anything. It's work that is a gift. We have stuff to do. We can go hard after this thing. How? With fear and trembling, it says. Wow. You don't want to know what those words mean? Fear and trembling. <laughs> There's no escaping it. It means fear and trembling. What? Why does he add that? Why does he invite us into working out our salvation with fear and trembling? It's because of this. Because we need to remember who we stand before. You know, most of us move through the world with fear and trembling. We just are afraid of people. We are afraid to say the wrong thing, afraid to post the wrong thing, afraid to vote the wrong thing. We are afraid, afraid, afraid of people. So Paul, along with Jesus, invites us to a true understanding of where we stand and who we stand before when he says this, Jesus says this, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, Jesus says, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. But then he goes on. He says this, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? But not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. 
Fear not, therefore, for you are of more value than many sparrows. Did you catch that? Jesus says, don't fear them. Fear him. Therefore, fear not. Did you notice that? The fear of God leads us where? To the love of God. And therefore, freedom from fear. Here's what Jesus is saying. Fear God and you will never fear again. That's what fear and trembling means. But then Paul quickly pulls back the curtain in verse 13. He says, yes, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay. So here we discover another incredible facet of the gospel, which is what? The ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is what Christianity has to offer that no other religion has. When we submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, yes, we are commanded to obey Him. You can't escape that. But in the same breath, we understand that it is God Himself who is empowering us to this. The word works here when it says, for it is God who works in you. It's the word energeo. What does that sound like? God energizes us for this. And not just to do the work, it says. It says both to will and to do. Both to will and to work. To will, it means to desire. God is taking aim, not just at a surface level obedience here. He's taking aim at the deepest recesses of your heart to change your very desires to be more like Jesus. And this is precisely Paul's own dual experience. In two places, and I'll read them for you, he says the same. He says in 1 Corinthians, he says, I am the least of all the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. The author of this book that we're reading used to be a murderer of Christians. That's who he was. That's what he lived for. And so when he became an apostle, he knew that he had that that past. And so he says, I was unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But then he says this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. It's that dual reality. He is working so hard, and yet he knows it's God. It's God's grace at work in him. Another place in Colossians, he says, Jesus, we proclaim warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. Which is it? Are we working hard or is God doing something through us? Yes, 
Isn't that good news? God invites you to a life of intense focus, energy, effort. But he undergirds you the entire time. He informs every desire. He pours his spirit into you to change you from the inside out. Hallelujah. It's not all on me, but I get to be called in participation. I don't just have to sit and wait. We also shouldn't forget, though, that Paul is not just speaking to you and Jesus, you and Jesus, you and Jesus. He's speaking to a group here. He's speaking to an entire church. At the beginning, he says, to all the saints in Philippi. And so, yes, this applies to your individual life with God, but the point is for that relationship to spill into this group effort, this mission that we're all on together. So Paul finishes his zoomed-out view of obedience to Jesus because of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's like. Because of who we are, beloved of God, we should go hard in seeing our salvation worked out in our midst, being led, empowered, motivated, and directed by God himself. So now he zooms in. He zooms into the trees And I don't know about you, but when I'm going and walking with God through life, I constantly have to remember both the forest and the trees. You know, when I think of the grand, you know, movement that God wants to bring me to in general in my whole life, it's overwhelming. And so I have to to look at that next tree. I have to look at that next step and just take it knowing that he's got that big grand plan taken care of. But then, of course, there's a tree I come to that overwhelms me. Oh no, how can I possibly get past this step? And then I have to remember, okay, zoom out. God has me. He's taking me along. This one tree is just a reminder that I need him desperately. And so it's a constant zooming out, recognizing God's overarching hand on your life, but then it's another thing to zoom in and trust that he can get you to that next step. And so Paul zooms into the trees because of the context of conflict in this church. He provides them with some specifics on what it looks like like for them to walk in corporate obedience to Jesus. And so in verses 14 through 16, we get the trees. Let's reread those. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. In these verses, we get a lot. We get a a what. We get a why. We get aware and we get a how of corporate Christian discipleship. So we're going to walk through each one. And this is for us. This is our what to do. This is our why we're doing it. This is our where we're doing it. And this is our how to do it. These are our next steps after the beautiful reality that was Easter Sunday. So what's the what? Verse 14. 
He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Wow. It's just a simple command. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Many of you remember the stories of the people of Israel. And we just read Psalm 78 that included pieces of it that talk about this exact thing. The stories of the people of Israel being led through the wilderness and what were they doing constantly? Grumbling, complaining. God had just graciously and single-handedly rescued them from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. And he had committed to bringing them safely to the land that he had promised to give to Abraham's descendants. But on the way, even though God had miraculously provided food, water, guidance, they still constantly grumbled and complained. So Paul here, he's, he's referring, alluding directly to that reality, and he's inviting us away from that way of interacting with God. He's inviting us away from that attitude. He says, do all things without grumbling. And that word grumbling means grumbling. It means muttering, murmuring, complaining, whether it's silently to yourself or aloud to others. Grumbling is not lament. As we studied a few weeks ago, lament. Lament is a statement of grief. It's a statement of, of and in many ways, emotional, difficult pain. But grumbling is not lament. Why? Because lament is rooted in the goodness and faithful love of God. Grumbling is rooted in doubting the goodness and faithful love of God. Lament says, this hurts, but God is good. Grumbling says, this hurts, so God is not good. That's the difference. So Paul says, do everything without grumbling. Do not let what you're going through poison your view of the character of this good God. Don't do it. Because he's still good, whether you're grumbling or not. But he also says to avoid disputing. And that word, taken on its own, all it means is sort of reasoning, questioning. But in this context, it means to avoid arguing, disputing with one another about what? Things that don't matter. I tell you, in the last three years, I've experienced more people becoming more passionate about things that don't matter than I've ever encountered in my entire life. This goes hand in hand with what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in chapter 2, verse 2, when Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Our goal as a family of Jesus followers is to make the one thing our one thing. 
And as I said a few weeks ago, this does not mean we agree on everything. It doesn't. But it does mean that we avoid getting distracted by trivial things and elevating those things to be equal with the one thing. And so Paul, he invites us to do all things without grumbling or disputing, which means to move forward in our mission, trusting in the goodness of God and being singularly focused on one goal. So that's the what. What's the why? Verse 15, he says, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. We'll stop there. So all of this, all of this has to do with God's character. It's not just arbitrary rules of Christian conduct, but the character of God. You know, Paul says in his letter to the Ephesians, he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. So the goal is not just to check boxes of Christian ethics. It is to become like our Father. If we are the children of God, our goal, our desire, God's plan for us is to become like Him. Children of God. And if we're all siblings in a family, it's because we are all children of God. My kids act like Anna, my wife, and myself. They act like us. And that's a good thing and a bad thing. But they can't help it. It just happens. They become like us because they're with us all the time. God is forming us. He is making us more like himself as his children. And guess what? He is 100% good. So, my kids become like me. That's not 100% good. We becoming like Jesus, we becoming like the Father, that's 100% good. When it says that you may be blameless and innocent, that's a state of ongoing becoming. It's not automatic. It's a lifelong process. You know, there's a few theological terms, one of which is justification, one of which is sanctification, one of which is glorification. Justification happens when you entrust your life to Jesus. You're justified. You're, you're clean. You're not guilty. Verdict up front, not guilty, not condemned, clean. Sanctification is a process by which we're be, being made more like Jesus. This does not happen overnight. It's going to last until you die or until Jesus returns. And then glorification is what happens when we see him face to face. It says we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And so it's a becoming. In Christ, yes, through justification, we are blameless and innocent in status. But through Christ, we are also becoming blameless and innocent. Blameless the word is used many times in the book of Job. If any of you have read the book of Job, it's a long book. And it's really intense. It talks about the, the, the suffering of the innocent. Job is a man that God calls blameless. Blameless is someone who fears God alone. 
who does not fear others, who does not elevate himself, but fears God alone and turns away from anything that would be against God. Innocent is just the result of that character. So many of you carry past sins. And I want to encourage you this morning. You might know in your head that you're forgiven, that you're cleansed. You might see it on paper. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You might read that. You might say, okay, but you still feel guilty. You still feel dirty. What you need to know is that God is able and wants to heal you, wants to bring restoration to you, wants to make you completely whole. Not just to cleanse you from your past sins and the sins done against you, but to make you a whole person again. He is able to do that. Fully and completely his child. This is the way. He is making us into his image through Christ. And so where? We've seen the what, we've seen the why, but where is this happening? Back in verse 15, he says, In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. God doesn't remove us from the world to make us more like him. He does this work in us, in the midst of the world. When Jesus prayed before he was betrayed, arrested, crucified, died, buried, and resurrected, what did he say? I pray for those people that will hear about me through the disciples' words. He says, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world, but that they would, what does he say? I'm pulling on my dad right now. I don't pray that you would take them out of the world, but, drum roll, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So God leaves us in the midst, it says, of a crooked and twisted generation. And that's where this work happens. Why? Because he loves the world. He loves the world and he wants to reveal his love for the world through what he's doing in you. He wants you to be a living epistle, as it says in another place in the New Testament, that God is writing his story about his character on you so that others can read it. That's why we're always doing two things. We're always gathering and we're always scattering. We gather to worship. We gather to fellowship. We gather to pray. We gather to sit under the word. We scatter to share it. We scatter to be the body of Jesus in our context. At your job, in your family, wherever you are, you are to be, as it says, a light in the world. So once again, 
Paul alludes to the people of Israel when he says that we are in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. These are the same words that Moses used in Deuteronomy 32 when he talks uh, from the Lord's perspective about the children of Israel who grumbled, who complained, who walked away from God. This is exactly how God describes Israel, who had seen the salvation of God firsthand and yet thought they knew better. You know, Paul here now applies it to the Philippians environment. They're not in a Jewish environment. They're in a Roman colony. A lot more similar to our context than to a Jewish context. A plural society. Politics was king. What does crooked and twisted mean? It sounds harsh. But just like grumbling, it just means what it says. Crooked, twisted. Crooked, not straight. Twisted, not straight. The ways of the world are bent away from the straight paths of God. You know, many of you have heard Satan doesn't make anything up, right? He just takes the good things of God and he twists them. So the most simple way to understand the crookedness and the twistedness of our generation, of our culture, is this. Our culture loves the things God has made. The good gifts that he has given, whether it's beauty, design, entertainment, sex, family, vocation, justice, truth, the list goes on. All of these are good things. But when you love God's good gifts and you do not love the giver of those good gifts, you end up worshiping the gifts then the gifts become spoiled. They were never meant to be worshipped. God doesn't remove us from the world because he wants us to be different. He wants those differences to be noticeable. He wants us to be those who look straight past the gifts that God gives to the giver and to praise him and to thank him and to serve him. To worship him. God gives us good gifts. It says in the word that every good and perfect gift comes from above. But we need to always remember the giver of those gifts. Otherwise, we're going to go the opposite direction of God's ways. You know, he, he wants us simply to follow him as his children so that we can be, as it says, like stars against the backdrop of the night sky. He wants us to shine. He wants us to be different. He wants us to be like, huh. He wants people to look at your life and go, huh. That's different. But how are we to go about doing this? That's what we see last here is the how. Verse 16, it says, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So what is our North Star 
as we seek to be like stars shining in the universe, in the world. It's the word of life. The truth of God's word in its testimony of the living word, Jesus Christ. And it says, holding that fast. You know, holding fast means holding on for dear life. Clinging to it with all your being. And this makes so much sense in our context because we are constantly being bombarded with other Gospels competing for first place. But this word, holding fast, can also be translated holding out. Which also makes sense because we hold fast to it in order to be faithful, in order to be obedient, in order to receive our marching orders from the only one who deserves to give us marching orders and to be contrasted with the world. But we hold it out so that others can see it. We hold it out so that those who have been swept up in this crooked and twisted generation, seeing the gifts but not the giver, can by God's grace grab hold and understand that every good thing in your life comes from one person's hand. And he deserves praise. He deserves thanks. And a life lived in praise and thanks to him is the only life that really works. Everything else will send you off whatever deep end you can think of. Ultimately, this is our primary aim. It's to obey Jesus, becoming more like him in the midst of a culture that's opposed to him, and to participate in God's plan to rescue as many as possible. And we do that by holding fast and holding out the word of life. And then we get into the heart of gospel effort there. At the end of verse 16, he says, Paul says, So that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. And so Paul wraps up this exhortation with a personal touch. You know, this is someone for whom the gospel was everything. He used to persecute and, and imprison and murder these people. But now he's their biggest proponent because he met Jesus face to face. So he wants this group of people, this church in ancient Greece, those who came to faith under his missionary work, he wants them to continue in the faith. Especially amidst difficulty. And look, he fast forwards to the very end of time. He says, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud. That that day, that when that day comes, when Jesus is revealed to all people who have ever lived for who he truly is, that he wants to stand assured that those whom God entrusted to his care have remained faithful. For him, this is the difference between a fruitful life and a wasted life. He says, I want to make sure that I didn't run in vain or labor in vain. In vain just means empty. I don't want to have an empty life. 
And so he illustrates his heart from the sacrificial system. He says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon your sacrificial offering of faith. Now, the drink offering was basically just a complement to the regular offering. It wasn't the primary thing being offered. It was there to elevate the offering that was already there. And so Paul is saying that he wants them to know that at the end of his life, if all he has to show is that this church remained faithful, he'd be okay with that. Not just okay with it, he says, but intensely happy about it. He says, I am glad and rejoice. You know, at the end of our lives, when we're reflecting as we hear that we're going to do at the end of our lives, at the end of your life, are you looking forward to reflecting on all that you have accomplished? Or on all that you've helped others accomplish? That's Paul. You know, he's, right now, he doesn't know if he's going to get executed or not. His trial is set. It's weeks or months in the future. He doesn't know his fate. And he's saying, you know, if these people remain faithful because of my encouragement, that's a good life. Paul's heart here is just like Jesus's. You know, he is happy to make his life's one aim to elevate others. And for him, elevating others means introducing them to the one who has been elevated above all others. Now, for him, if he fades into the background, his mission is accomplished. And so, a week after Easter, what is our next step? It's the same next step that we encounter every morning. Are we going to obey Jesus or are we going to obey ourselves? Who are we taking our marching orders from? We can take the next step of individually and collectively obeying Jesus in confidence. Why? Because God himself, by his spirit, is undergirding our effort. We can go hard after the mission he's called us to, knowing that he himself is empowering us to do it. Wherever you're at today, wherever you're at, if you follow Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, let us all praise the living God, who is the giver of good gifts and yet is so much better than the gifts that he gives. Let's pray.